If you're listening for the first time, welcome. If you're back for more, thank you for continuing to support this project and being a part of it. If you're not yet a member of my email list, go to sarahmarshallnd.com to register. That will continue to be the hub of all new releases of podcasts, articles, and updates. As this project goes into its third year this June, I'm building a team to expand into more ways to support you on your healing journey, and my email list is the best way to do that. Go to my website, sarahmarshallnd.com to sign up. Welcome to Heal. I'm your producer, Kendra Ricken. On today's episode, Dr. Sarah Marshall gets vulnerable with money coach Michelle Arpin Vagina as they discuss some of Dr. Marshall's beliefs around money, and together they draw the relationship between receiving and building health and wealth. Here's your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. If this podcast goes anything like the pre-interview, it's going to knock, knock somebody's socks off, knock mine off again. <laughs> Me too. Awesome, Michelle. Well, let's go ahead and get started then. Sounds good. This is so exciting for me because, you know, I've had different kinds of subject matters come up to be on heel. And like, it's such a natural fit to talk about our relationship to money and our relationship to health. And you and I talked a bit about like, there's a world of money coaches and information about how to tackle, you know, our relationship to our finances and our wealth and our money in different ways. And then you and I had our pre-interview and it was like cosmic divine destiny chemistry. And so I'm just can't wait to have this conversation with you and share your knowledge and your perspective with our listeners. So thank you, Michelle, for being here. Thanks for having me. Our pre-call, I felt like I was a magnet who had found her fridge. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we we we'll get into it instead of just telling you guys about it. But like, really, Michelle and I had the experience of what I do in health and healing is what you do for people around their relationship to money and finances. And so it was a quite a match made in heaven. So let's go ahead and actually lay that out for people. So you are founder and gateway into a consultancy to help support people around what would you say, like shifting their views about money, their relationship, their actions, all of the above? All of the above. The way I like to put it is I help people transcend their money beliefs. Mm. And I use transcend very purposely instead of transform. It is transformative, but transcend really is, it's the highest level of human needs. So going beyond self-actualization, which money does help you to do that, right? If you're spending it wisely and using it to help you to support and achieve your purpose. But transcendence is really that stepping into that realm of mystical experiences and where whatever it is that you're doing in your life is much, much bigger than you yourself. This is so... I mean, I often have the experience of falling into the interview or the podcast as like a participant (laughs) and this is incredibly timely and it, and for me, and I am super transparent with my listeners. So I'm going to just lay it out here is like, you know, this is my, I'm just completing my 12th year in practice. I'm, I'm opening, speaking of gateways, the 13th year into being a naturopathic physician and in that time, I, 
a couple years ago, like two years ago, I actually looking back, realized I achieved and fulfilled the dream I'd laid out for myself. Like Mm -hmm. I don't have a vision for where I am and beyond. It, It was like, I could never see further than a full practice a great middle-class financial life where I can pretty much have the freedom to choose to do most anything that I want to. Like, I don't even have the vocabulary of I can't afford something or something's too expensive. It's just, do I want to invest that money in it or not? And I'm noticing that like, I've had a bit of a glass ceiling I've been bumping up against about what I think is possible in terms of, for me, it shows up more in the fulfillment of my business, but I know my relationship to money, how I make money, how I have capital in order to invest back into my business is all related. And so, yeah, I have a feeling that I'm going to have a lot of like, God, me too, or that's me (laughs) experiences through this, even with what you just said, you know, and I've I've taken, I've been in business coaching course after business coaching course. I've usually had a business coach. I've done money mindset work before with, there's an amazing woman named Kendall Summerhawk who was out of Tucson, Arizona, that she had actually been the coach to one of my first business coaches. And she had a whole really cool world she created around spiritual archetypes and how that plays a role in our finances. And I got something from it. But it was sort of a bit like sometimes when you get your first astrology reading done and you're like, wow, yep those are the things I do. That's the problem. But there was not like, like when you just said transcendence, like how do I actually shift something such that I'm not operating the same way that I did before that work is new to me in money. I've done it a lot in health and in other areas in my life, but I can see that it's new to me here. So what does that actually look like with your clients? Like what, where do you draw from? What's the methodology? Yeah. Well, I do no research on my own other than the copious amounts of courses and reading that I do and then being in practice. So I don't create any type of research and discoveries, right? I kind of organize everyone else's discoveries and my own hodgepodge of what it is that I do. And just to go back for a second, I so related to what you just said about you know, you had this grand vision and you've achieved everything that was in that grand vision. I've had the same experiences and the best cure is you have to make another grand vision for yourself. That's that, you know, meaty and juicy and takes 13 years to get to that. You're like, yes, like I got it. And it's so interesting because most of us, when it comes to money, we're on a hedonic treadmill of always wanting more, 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 more. Yet, I think for some of the juiciest goals that we have in our life, when we reach them, there is sort of this satisfaction. And when we have enough to make ends meet, you know, what is our drive toward money, right? And there's three or four, right? Drivers, love, freedom, security, and power is usually what's underneath, you know, the, the wind beneath our wings. But to go back to what you said about mindset, you know, transcending money beliefs is in part to me really looking at the will. So you know how they say when you have, uh, when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. What I believe is the will is the way. And most of us might, well, I'll speak for myself. When I used to think of the will, I would think of strong willed and goodwill. But there's also skilled will and transpersonal will. And 
part of transpersonal will is it's not the fake it till you make it kind of stuff. Although there is a grain to that in transpersonal, right? So transpersonal touches on the edge of transcendence in that whatever it is you're up to in life, and let's just say that it's all related to money, right? Because money touches every aspect of our life. It's like secondhand smoke, right? It just seeps in everywhere. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, right. Right in the crevices, right? It's like water. It's, yeah. it's good. It's going to find its place to go. Transpersonal will is like trans, uh, transcendence in that whatever it is you're up to in your life, it's bigger than you. It's larger than you as the person, right? And when you think about the will in terms of how you use that to become, right? Going back to that fake it till you make it, it's in the becoming that is how I believe we actually transcend our money beliefs. So it's literally creating a new identity. It's deciding, Mm. right? This is how it's going to be. This is how it was. But now I've maybe taken a little trip down memory lane, which we can talk about how to do that in terms of what are your money beliefs and what were your influences and how did you create them? But then as the adult now in the room, looking back, right, it's like you're at some point, we all want to be seated at the adult table, not the kids table any longer, right? With money. It's a matter of looking back, but then literally saying to ourselves, this is how it's going to be going forward. Why? Because I said, because I decided. Yeah. And then that gets into a whole host of, well, how do you do that? How do you become? And I have some tools about that. That resonates a ton for me because I've noticed, I think I did do that. I'm kind of looking back retroactively fitting it in because like, really, I mean, I graduated from medical school and before I went to medical school, I was a raft guide and a downhill ski race coach. Like I've never worked a corporate job. I've never had a salaried position. I was always like, and then I went to school and came out and immediately started my own private practice. My dad's a business owner. I already had a model of like being in business for yourself And so I just launched and I did feel like I was faking it till I was making it like many, I actually remember the first four or five years, like I was pretty sure I was just lying to people at a certain level. Like I actually had the skills as a physician, I mean, a young physician, but still I had the skills, but in terms of my business. And like, I remember there was, when I first moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, I was driving my old beater Subaru hatchback from Montana, which fit in just fine in Montana. And now I'm in Scottsdale and I'd go to these business meetups and I'd park at the back of the parking lot in order to like, make sure nobody saw me get out of this like 10 year old Subaru. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be like, I do not look like I'm a successful doctor here, you know? And then somewhere in there, it was like my life and who I knew myself to be became a match. And it seemed like at the time that was a great success. And then it's got stagnant. And like, I've noticed, as you said that, like recently for me, it's been, I have a strong desire from, I wouldn't going to call it a more altruistic place to make a bigger difference, to reach more people. I mean, that's the birth of this podcast had a lot to do with like, how can I actually put new conversations into the network of conversations into the world of health and healing that hopefully touch more people's ears and lives and start shifting, transforming how we deal with healthcare and the health industry and how individuals deal with health. But there's this like, 
I have felt like it's, and this is probably going to land you right in the middle of my childhood beliefs. Like it's not fair of me to want more. It's somehow like I, especially because I have such a great life. I have a new car in the driveway. I live in a single family home on three quarter of acres. Like this should be enough. Anything beyond this, like I can just feel it in my gut as I'm saying this is definitely greedy. But yet if somebody came to me in their healthcare and they're like, Sarah, I used to have this illness. I've lost 25 pounds. I'm symptom free. And, you know, I can't like run a marathon or anything, but like I can walk my parent, you know, my dog down the street and I can get down on the floor with my grandkids. Like it's enough. I'd be like, what do you mean? It's enough. Like now there's fitness. Now there's how strong do you want to be? Now there's like, what are we preventing for the future? There's a world of, of health security that you can actually create. Like I get it in the health world and I'm feeling this like invisible wall or invisible ceiling or box I have around myself that like beyond where I am now is greedy. And I remember a childhood belief around the world of like, if I have more, somebody else will have less. And I do have a strong conviction about how we're dealing with climate change and how we operate in terms of being, you know, that the the United States is, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's something like X percentage of the world population, but we use 25% of the world's resources. And that might even be higher. Like those kinds of things are, are value driven for me. That is a problem. And I haven't worked out where I've got myself trapped around it in finances. Now we don't have to turn this into a coaching call about me. I'm just like mapping myself onto it. So it has me be really curious is like that new conversation of going beyond willpower or goodwill, like strong will is like that skilled will and transpersonal will. And then I think like, okay, so Michelle, how did you end up here? Like, how did you end up in this conversation? What's like, did you come through a process of having to heal your own relationship to money and finances? What was that for you? Oh yeah. (laughs) And I'm happy to share all that. But before we do, can I can we backtrack a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. What's super interesting to me is that you said that you're in a stage where you want to have more impact, right? Part of why you want to earn more money, or you didn't say it this way, but having more impact will lead to more money for you. Yeah. Right. And then when you have a client who has reached her goals, and then you want her to go beyond, you're also having an impact conversation with them. So I think all roads are leading to impact for you. Yeah. Right. So, so doctor heal thyself, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you're on the right track. You're totally on the right track. And even, you know, let's go into some scripts too. Sure. So there, there are four main scripts. And, you know, I've never done a money assess a money scripts assessment with you. I have a hunch about which one that you might be strong in, just given what you said. So I'll leave it up to you to take that guess. But it's money vigilance, which the underlying belief is money is private. Hmm. Money status, which is my self-worth is my net worth. Money worship, which is more money will fix all my problems. And money avoidance, which is money is bad. Oh, I'm definitely avoidance. <laughs> and I have a family lineage where there was that avoidance conversation. My dad's a little bit more vigilance. My mom's a little bit more avoidance. And so dad mostly was really private, didn't talk about it. Mom, if I heard anything, it came from this like 
we should live on, you know, she literally was in the generation and the hippie culture of, you know, eat for a small planet. That, that was it. That was a philosophical way that we even dealt with being vegetarian and vegan when we were young was about what it would do to preserve resources for the whole. And so there was definitely mm-hmm. some of that. I could that full on see both of those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're living in a really interesting time and where we're evolving is in the use of our dollars has never been more important to consider than now. And I believe that this is a trend that's going to continue. In fact, there are some schools of thought that where we spend our money and who is running the corporations where we're spending our money on their products and services will become more important than our actual vote in this country. Yeah, I can get that. So I'm not here to debate, you know, politics. I'm just saying that's a school of thought out there. And it actually really aligns with what you said around having, you know, climate change as something that you're really concerned about. Mm -hmm. Well, your dollars used in the right way can actually move the needle on that today, where we didn't have that power capability even five years ago, but we Mm -hmm. do now. So you can make a very intellectual case for why you might want to increase your income so that you're able to support some of these things that are really important to you, but you have to have that glue, right? So underneath of all that has to be your big why, right? Mm -hmm. That's the fuel, which that kind of leads into, you know, how did I get to this place? And, you know, what is my big why? So what I always tell people that I'm up to in the world is I grew up knowing what being poor was like, and it is worse, or running out of money, I should say, was like, and it's worse than you imagine it is. So what I'm up to is to help people get set for life on their terms so that they never have to experience what I did. And I just used the word poor and corrected myself. We weren't poor. We never, I never went without food or a a roof over my head or any of those things. I had two parents who were really, really successful people. They were also highly defiant. In fact, I call them high performance defiant where they really had it all going on except when it came to their money. So I grew up, and I know this is really hard for people to relate to, but I grew up like airplane and yacht poor, Hmm. which sounds like a really nice problem to have. (laughs) It really wasn't. When we bought, you know, a a private airplane, my parents literally were down to their last $5. Hmm. And when they bought a sports car, the same thing. When I was 10, we were about to foreclose on our house, not because we didn't have the money, but because my parents mismanaged it into buying really high ticket, uh, high price toys. Yeah. And when I was 17, after being told my whole life, and this is where I think the will really kicked in for me, you're the first that will go to college in our family. You're really smart. Uh, my father took me on college campus tours. When uh, I was a senior in high school, spring of that year, my parents decided to buy a yacht. And I didn't know until after I graduated that those were the funds that were meant to send me to college. So I found out standing on the dock 
of a marina, maybe a month after graduating, that I was on my own, that I don't have the money to send you. So the universe works in really interesting ways. And I know you had a conversation recently on your podcast about miracles. So here's the miracle that happened. I stood on that dock and first of all, I was in complete shock. It it felt like my internal organs turned chalk white and I did not react when my father told me. I just stared at him. And in fact, I always think about it now that I don't know how I didn't push him off the dock into the water when he told me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And if I ever had the chance to relive it, I totally would now. But I stood there and my wheels just started turning. Okay, college costs a lot of money. I don't have any money. How am I going to get money? All right, get a job. And I literally like turned and walked to my car and drove myself home and the wheels just wouldn't stop turning. I ended up getting, within a month or so, I got a job at a bank and it was right when the fall semester was starting. They asked me to take a a community college course and they said, if you pass, we'll reimburse you. So I said, what is, what is that? And they described it as college tuition reimbursement. And if I took courses that related to my work, that they would pay for that. Well, ding, 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 ding. Yep. I had no idea what college tuition reimbursement was. I worked full time for eight years and I, my number one benefit I was looking for was, do you have college tuition reimbursement? And I used it and that's how I got my degree. Yeah. So I look back and like, it is amazing to me, a couple of things that as a 17 year old kid in that moment, I, I knew I didn't have the money, but I didn't hear, I don't have the money. I was searching for the money, right? I didn't say you don't have the money. Okay. You can't go in my head. Okay. You don't have the money. You got to figure out how to get the money or how to figure out how to, you know, do this. And I think a lot of people would let them, let that stop them. I think the other thing that happened to me simultaneous to that, and maybe it was already in the works was the decisions that my parents had made around their money was not going to be my fate. I remember thinking growing up, I am not going to live this way when I get older. And I think that moment standing on the dock was the moment where I said, your relationship to money has nothing to do with mine and I'm creating my own. Now, was it a smooth path that I screw up? Yeah. Like buying a brand new car when I was 19, when I couldn't afford and I was trying to pay tuition. Like those were just dumb things to do, right? Racking up credit card debts because I made, I did not make a lot of money as I was going through college. So I did all the, you know, the typical things that you do when you're trying to survive and you're not really thinking. And then I really started growing out of that as my income increased. So yeah, that's how I landed here. Yeah. So I like to say I turned a uh, morbid curiosity into a profession. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And, you know, I can see for myself, this actually just came up very recently in some, you know, I'm always doing personal growth work. I'm always looking at myself, my relationships and 
you know, I actually did have somebody recently look at my astrology chart and apparently, and I'm not super hip on astrology, but all my planets are almost below the horizon line, which means like the internal versus the external, like my whole life, this lifetime is about inner work. And I've been looking actually at this, this whole conversation I've been in has really been about two years in the making. I have an awesome life coach, Audra Boyd. She's been on the podcast several times and I've worked with her for about two and a half years. And the first six months we did this like grief and loss work. And I actually did it as a beta test in her practice. She was like, I'm going to do this program and I'm looking for people. I'm like, I'll, I'll go for it. I'll let you know. One, I didn't think I had a lot of grief and loss because like my parents were both alive. I didn't deal with death. And I sort of had it like the only thing that would be grief or loss is death. And then I started to see all these other components of things where there had been loss in my life. And we came to this place of realizing where I was at in that very moment was the loss of a dream because the dream was fulfilled. And I was Mm. in this like purgatory limbo land where I should be grateful for what I have. And I should be happy with the way my life is because look at all the success I've done. And, but, and I've heard it from other people, especially in high performing worlds of like Olympic gold medal syndrome, where like someone's whole existence of their career is to make it to a certain level of achievement. And then they do that. And then there's this like depression that hits. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. super dark for me, but it was gray and it was stony gray. Mm -hmm. And, and I've shifted from that place to a different inquiry, which is what do I want the next 10 or 13 years to be about? Like, what am I, what, what is that new big dream that I'm creating? And, and so far it hasn't unearthed, but what has started to show up is the stuff that's in the way. And one of the things that's in the way is I went the opposite direction as you. If I don't meet the same level of success as my father, I'm a failure. My dad ran a very successful medical technology computer software company, started it in 1980 at the beginning of the boom of the personal computer, took it right Mm. through the dot-com era and, you know, retired at 70 successful. We'll call it that, you know, quite, quite successful in the world of finances. And at some point he had over, you know, 80 employees. He got listed as one of the top 100 places to work in Rochester, New York. So there's like, and then there's my version of his success from my eyes, right. That's not even actually, but like, I've really seen this. If I can't do and achieve materialistically and financially, what my dad has done and achieved, I'm a failure. But then when I actually look authentically at myself, I don't even want what my dad did. Like it's, that's not, I don't even want to actually be a business owner who I am as a healer, who I am as a doctor. Now I know there's a business structure that would actually empower the work that I do in a much bigger way to Mm -hmm. create that, you know, bigger impact out there on the planet with people's lives. And so that's just come up for me very recently is the extent to which I've trapped myself in this worldview of if I don't X, then Y, and particularly about, I went the other way, which is I got to do it like my parents. I got to do it like my dad Mm -hmm. or nothing else matters. And I'm just starting to take that one apart and start to look at it and like free myself up that I could truly create from a blank canvas what's next versus it having a particular way. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you're talking about identity stuff, really. I Mm -hmm. think it's all about, you know, what is, what does a fill in the blank doctor look like? 
right? What's a million dollar doctor look like? What's a $5 million doctor look like? What's a hundred thousand dollar doctor look like? Like whatever that number is or whatever the description is that you have, I think we're talking identity yeah. and then some belief works, right? Like if you, if, if anybody has a subconscious belief around, if you are money avoided, that money is bad, think about that for a second. Well, if you think money is bad, or you think people who have money are bad, then when you come into money, if I have money out the door, bad, out the I door, let it go. That's uh-huh. right. Yeah, that's right. That's identity. That's yeah. identity. And part of what you're bringing up, Sarah, is it's so instructive as an adult to look back, right? Look through the adult eyes of our childhood and think about, okay, what were the most impactful experiences that I had growing up and really relive them, right? So I'll tell you part of my healing. Can I tell you part of my healing story? Yeah. Yeah. So I kept the secret of... The boat, by the way, was called Another Toy, which a really cheeky friend of mine said that boat should have been named Michelle's tuition. <laughs> and you know, when you can start laughing at jokes, you know you've you're, you're there's some freedom there. Yep. Exactly. Well said. And I kept that story in from when I was 17 until my late 40s. Did not tell us all. And I, through writing, started writing my story. It was just a self-imposed curriculum of, okay, I'm going to write my story. And I actually sat in a Starbucks writing. And as I was writing it, I was making myself relive the moment on the dock. What did I do next? What were my 20s like? Just the whole shebang. And as I was doing it, tears were just literally stream. I wasn't boohooing, but they were streaming down my cheeks and I'm in a public place and I didn't care. It was like, well, obviously I got to get this out of me. And now this is really unorthodox. And I'm not sure that this is advice that I would give everybody because everybody's on their own journey. But what I decided to do after I got it all out, at least on paper, was I took a one day public speaking refresher course. And I vowed, I made a little vow to myself that if I had a chance to tell my story while I was there, that I, that I would. And at the very last exercise of the day, the, the coach said, okay, everyone, and it was a small group, maybe six or eight people, everyone is going to pick a story, any story from their life. And you have two minutes to get up and tell it. And it was a public speaking course. So the goal was to use as many of the techniques that we had learned and practiced all day and incorporate it into our two minute talk. Well, I basically thought I was going to have a stroke when she said that. And I had made this promise to myself that I was going to tell the story. So I was practicing with somebody before and I couldn't speak. I couldn't get it out. I I really was paralyzed. And fortunately for me, the, I asked the, the coach in the room if we could talk outside. And I told her what was going on through sobs and tears. And she literally looked me in the eyes and held my hands and said, just tell me your story. And I threw the tears, told her my story. And at the end, she said, okay, do you think you can walk in the room and tell the group? And I did. 
And I walked in and I, you know, told, told what had happened. It was the first time in my entire life I had ever told anyone. And I purposely actually chose not only to do a public speaking course, I happen to work in Manhattan, but I chose to do it in Manhattan because to me, it just felt like the stakes were really high. There's just something about the city and being in a skyscraper and the New York thing. And I forced it out of myself. I finally, and it wasn't intellectual, it was more on an intuitive level. I knew it's time to exercise the story out of your body. And what I had no idea of was the peace and the sense of belonging that I had been missing. And I was having a really good life to that point. But there's a line in the sand of before that day and after. And I was a completely different person in that I just became myself. That's really what happened. And then I had the courage. It actually wasn't even courage any longer to then talk about it. So that's how I healed myself. That's the freedom of it. And you Mm -hmm. literally, I mean, I will never know, but my experience from the other side of the veil in terms of health and, and disease conditions is those kinds of held resentments and regrets and shame that we isolate, we literally, and you think about the word isolate, we ice it over, we freeze it and it, it, but it's not like nowhere it's in our body, right? Becomes chronic illness becomes disease Mm -hmm. in many people's worlds. And, and I truly believe that it may not always be this lifetime that sometimes some of the things frozen in our bodies and our, it comes from lineage work and comes from multiple Mm -hmm. generations of dealing with shame and money shame is a huge area that we still have had. I mean, I don't know that this is actually true, but from my view, just looking at the world and I'm eternally grateful for the Me Too movement and the things that have opened up around sexuality and gender expression. But it seems to me, we as a culture right now have more freedom to discuss rape and molestation and sexual abuse and physical abuse than we do to talk about our finances, our financial world that we inherited. And and so part of like, what I know is the access to healing shame is appropriately and safely shedding light on shame, being able to Mm -hmm. speak it to a therapist, being able to speak it to a friend who actually is going to listen it from a healing and compassionate place. And then for many people I know who have done public speaking and talks about their own stories, they worked with a coach, they crafted their talk and being able to literally effectively go public about an area of their life has made massive transformations. Now doing that with wisdom is my exclamation point. Like it could be an incredibly healing perspective. Finding the courage to word vomit on Facebook may not leave you with an experience of actually being heard and taken care of. So I I caution that place. But some people have have had that experience through the Me Too movement. And like, I mean, I watch myself come up against it big time around finances. And yet I can see, for me, the relationship shows up more between money and my romantic life because I've done so much work, but I know there's connections between my romantic relationships and my, I mean, one of my friends just flat out said, do you have your future partner and your financial security collapsed? And I was like, oh yeah. Like, absolutely. Like Hmm. I haven't even been able to get to a place where I can fully pull apart, even though I'm clear, I'm independently successful. I have all the ability to take care of myself financially. 
I have this cultural and familial inherited construct of my partner will either add to or take me down. (laughs) And like, Mm. I can't let him just be him who he is with the gifts that he has. There's still this like long-term future concern around that. But I see it in other people. They're less likely to hire me because I am out of pocket. So people have to have a certain level of financial ability to work with me. But people who come to me and I can hear the way I could make a difference in their health and their relationship to money and their relationship to their health are an identical value structure. And, Mm -hmm. and like, it's almost like pick an area, heal your relationship to money or heal your relationship to your health and well-being. It's going to move the other area because it's actually the same core identity or the same core, like belief structure. And I, I'm starting to intuitively and also literally experience that, you know, a divorce in two broken engagements later. And I have an assortment of guys that I've made a really solid attempt at a long-term committed relationship with, and that hasn't panned out. And I can see that there's some funny business going on between Mm -hmm. my, and, and when I did do the archetype work with under Kendall Summerhawk, it was actually with Leslie Cunningham, who I actually did it with there's, she looks at it around where we collapse love, value, security, and a couple others. And I have love and money super tied together. And where I spend my Mm -hmm. money is to go visit people, to have experiences with people, to get a sense of love and connection. But I, I moved to Phoenix and I spent my entire first summer wearing my same wardrobe from Montana and not buying any new clothes appropriate to living in 120 degrees. And I Mm. will like, not buy clothes, not buy shoes, not like do things for myself, not get my hair cut, not get my nails done, but then I'll drop five grand on a coach, which at a level like is inside of my values, but it's interesting to me how I have no problem spending significant amounts of money in certain areas of my life, but then there's mm-hmm. other areas and, I, and I've done enough coaching work to, to pay attention to like where you spend your money and where you're free with it and where you're not and what that might be pointing to. And I can see this whole thing that I've had for a long time where like my income pretty much is split between my primary like needs in terms of food and housing, travel and personal growth. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. where I spend my money. And the travel though is almost always either related to personal growth and spirituality, like going to a retreat, or it's all about my connection, my family, seeing people, being with people, having that experience of love and connection. And like, Mm -hmm. it's just right there on my profit and loss statement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think it's like, you're expressing your money, like a love language, right? Yeah. And if you think about, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness, that's complete BS. Yes, it does. If you spend it right. Yes, it does. And how money makes you happy is connection, right? And personal growth, it makes you happy, right? So you're happy. The part you might be getting unhappy about is maybe the bank account isn't where you want it to be, right? But you're aware of it. Yep. And again, I think it's, that's an identity and a belief thing of what does it mean, right? Because if you, what does it mean if I start to have excess funds that, I am starting to put away for myself, for the purpose of taking care of myself. And I wonder if in the personal growth arena, if you were to think about how does, how do the courses that you take and all of the development that you do, 
how is that a proxy for taking care of yourself? And I bet you there'd be a link there that you could make an analogy and make a case that would make it okay for you to start to increase your income, put more money away, start investing, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, your big why behind it and a purpose is probably going to be rocket fuel, right? Like you didn't become a doctor without having a very big purpose. Mm -hmm. So that's probably part of your journey right now is to figure out what is, what is the leg of this part of my purpose about, right? Or how do I, how do I, I'm already, it seems to me that you're already in alignment with your purpose. So now it's about how do I figure out this part of my journey that I'm still in the flow of the alignment, but I'm expanding what I'm doing. Yeah. And how do I make that? Okay. Yeah. I think you're just in a big personal growth mode around this. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And it, you know, it's been showing up in a lot of different areas of life and and I can't even, I mean, I don't know if this is cultural or genetic or what, but like I turned 40 a year and a half ago and it was like a Turkey timer just like popped out and like, suddenly I cared about retirement. I had never cared about retirement. Like all of a sudden I was like, I don't know, do I need life insurance? Should I have like, I mean, it was just like, like out of nowhere. And, and some of it was also the, there, there was definitely some cultural stuff I can see of like, like 39 was still this world of possibility and 40 was like, well, you better deal with the cards you've been dealt, which I'm, I'm also piecing that one apart as well, which is just interesting and hilarious, but, and I can see collapses in there. And, and what I want to look at here is you've brought up identity and belief a lot. And this is not actually something I've done a ton of work around in my healing practice with my clients directly. But I think I, I am like, I can see where like my practice in particular filters for people where their health crisis is in opposition to their identity. Their identity is like, this isn't me. I don't have things. So there's a strong propulsion to correct it. And there's a strong desire to like, okay, wait a minute, hold on. You know, I'm an like, and I can map it onto myself of like, even though I spent my childhood in bed sick with asthma and bronchitis and pneumonia and mononucleosis, and I missed a third of school in my primary education, you'd think I would have ended up with an identity of being a sick person. But because of who my parents were, I didn't. It, it actually, mm-hmm. like, I barely even remember being sick most of the time, but I can tell you all about the ski races that I did and the swimming classes that I took and all the camp, camp, summer camps I went to. And like, my parents were just incredibly good. that My health was something I had to deal with, but it wasn't who I was. And, mm-hmm. and so, but I can see as a whole for many people, their illnesses or their status of their health is collapsed into their identity. And I ha- I do have some experience with some of my clients where when I look deeper underneath, like one of the ones that's come up recently is there's certain illnesses, particularly, I do a lot of work with fibromyalgia and autoimmune disease in particular. And there's new research that's starting to pull together the relationship between unresolved, unhealed childhood trauma and how it directly impacts the immune system. Interestingly enough, shame is a cooling emotion, it sucks life out of something. Mm -hmm. And so people who've had a lot of shame in their childhood and their younger years tend to have these diseases of deficiencies and autoimmune disease can be one of them. And there's actually 
strong research that's shown that, you know, 80% of people who have autoimmune disease are women and it's not estrogen. That's not why it, it has to do with the way that women hold the burden of the emotions and the emotional difficulties of their families and their communities on their own selves and into themselves. They take responsibility for everybody else's emotions internally. And in that mm-hmm. process, there's this dysregulation that happens in their immune system. And if you think about, you know, autoimmunity as like a poetic metaphor, it's self-attacking self, your own immune system that's supposed to be your provider protector, that's supposed to make sure that you're safe and secure and healthy is now attacking vital organs and causing damage itself. So it's this self-hatred loop. It's this self-destructive loop. And people don't need to get too Mm. hung up on like, that's the only thing here. Like if it doesn't fit for you, but I have seen in many of my clients who deal with fibromyalgia and or autoimmune disease, there's PTSD in their childhood, or they dealt with really unhealthy parental child relationships. And I can just see access to a new conversation around there's an identity there that got created. Some Mm -hmm. of which is if I get healthy, does that make it okay? What my mom did. If I'm free from this constraint in my life, even though I know it's damaging my own self, my own life, there's an element of letting them off the hook, whoever that person is. And I bet mm-hmm. you see similar stuff for people around their finances. Yeah. 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 And when you were talking, you know, about deficiencies causing autoimmune, deficient meaning not enough. Yeah. And I think there's an analogy there, but here's where can we, I have this question I have to ask you. Yeah. Okay. So when you decided to become a doctor, right. And the journey was how long for you to where you got, not that you just had your doctorate, but that you literally were like, I'm a doctor. So from when I decided to become a doctor and when I actually experienced myself as a doctor, Mm-hmm. probably eight years. Okay. And all right. So how old were you when? That, you know, so I started, yeah. Journey? So I was 24 when I applied to medical school, 25 when I started graduated at 29, but I didn't actually like, there was a day I woke up kind of an experience or a time period where it was like, okay, this is real. This is actually happening. And it was about four or five years into my practice. So okay. I was about 35, 36, probably. Mm-hmm. Okay. So take me back to when you were 24, 25 years old and you were thinking of future Sarah. Yep. How close does your life match up to that now to what you were dreaming about? Okay. Listeners, I'm looking, there's two things that come to mind for me. One was because a lot of the work I was doing, I actually created a PowerPoint slide five-year vision for myself when I was just out of school. And it was like, here's what my life is going to look like when I'm my third year in practice, my fourth year in practice. my And I think I took it all the way out to my seventh year in practice. And the reason I hesitated is because I was sure I would be married with children. Like I was certain that was my future. And then there was this, like, I was going to be much more of a public speaker 
as a major component of me being a doctor. I never envisioned that I would be single with no kids where the majority of what I did was actually just be in in my private practice. And I didn't know I would be telemedicine and online. So at a level, the vision I remember from the beginning, my life actually doesn't look anything like what I envisioned (laughs) it to, but my internal experience of success and fulfillment of a dream is complete, even though it, it doesn't have the patina of what I envisioned of like me and my husband and two or three kids you know, living in a home and I would be traveling 50% of the time, speaking engagements and teaching and training. That was what I had envisioned originally. And you said, Sarah, that you, you hesitated. Were you referring to like having a seven-year plan? Is that what you meant when you said you hesitated? No, I hesitated. Cause like, I initially wanted to be like, yeah, I totally fulfilled what I set out to do. And then I looked again and was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> Like, Mm. and I actually know, and I, you know, again, like this is just, I'm, you know, listeners, you're along for the ride here in this and hopefully seeing stuff for yourself out of my sharing is I know I'm totally complete with not having kids. I actually can really get that this was my journey, but I've noticed like when you talk about the big why I've struggled for years with why would I bother making a big company? If it's not for something, it's not for my family. Like if it's just for mm-hmm. me or it's just for the impact has never felt like my actual internal driver. And because my parents don't need it and my sister doesn't need it. I, I, it's like, I've had this, <laughs> I've literally had people say, you'll probably meet the guy once you fulfill on really fully being who you want to be. And then I have another part of me that's like, I feel like I can't fulfill on that. If I don't know who the guy is, it's like this trap. Mm, And I'm saying that very superficially because I've actually really like taken that apart and looked at it and let go of a lot of things around it. But I'm going to bet there's some kernels of what has me in the glass box is around not having completed that I didn't fulfill on family and partnership the way I thought I would at this point in my life. Yeah. And that that may be part of where I'm just like, well, what's, you know, the, the actual experience is like, well, what would be the point of being a $5 million doctor? Like, why would mm-hmm. I bother? I don't mm-hmm. have a connection to why that would matter. So I'm like, Meh. as an individual single woman with no kids, I have a great life. I should just be done. Except that doesn't fit who I am at all to ever be like, I'm done. Hmm. Yep. And when you say I'm not done, are you comparing yourself to anybody else, or is that tr- coming from your own in- inner wisdom? Mostly, that's my own inner wisdom of like, you know, I f- reflected from the outside and also from an internal place. I actually do have a strong sense that that like I know my ultimate self expression is as a healer, and and in that more specifically than the mechanics of a doctor there's a big part of me that my favorite tool is teaching. It's where the podcast comes from. And, (laughs) and there's a strong amount of leadership that I've developed myself and have in my capacity and my leadership and my ability to teach is completely unexpressed. Not completely. I gets expressed on a, on a micro level on the individual basis with each one of my clients, 
but there's definitely a dream and a vision around, I mean, I've said it here on the podcast, like I'm going to make e-courses, I'm going to create, and I've been wrestling with the business structure around that and what's actually the best move for me. But like mm-hmm. there, I've even said, I don't know, should I go on sabbatical and get a PhD and actually be in academia? That doesn't fit me either, but there's something mm-hmm. like that is missing for me around, I think actually like publishing books, creating coursework, there's a whole world there that would not only fulfill something financially for me in that identity, like who I really am and who I want to be in the world, but also the component of like, if I can produce an e-course and have a thousand people take it, that's way more accessible than trying to filter 300 people through my practice. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I think I have to take something back. I, I do think it's related to identity, but in hearing you describe what your vision of becoming a doctor was, I actually think it's vision. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what you need is the vision. And yeah. I totally get what you're talking about of, you know, beyond a certain point, the money, you know, it, if it's not, you want it to serve, but it's got to have, I mean, what I've learned about you is it's got to have a very meaningful personal connection. Yeah. Right. So there could just be a lot of psychological distance with money in you in that if I'm just making it, but it's not touching a human. Mm, yeah. Healing no, sure. a human. Yeah healing a human, it's just not going to get you up and out of bed to go do it. So I think maybe you got to find a link between money and healing the humans in a way that they're not out. They are not out there that they are up close and front and personal to you. And that's going to motivate you. Yeah. So when you do this work with with like, like, I want to leave my listeners with access for themselves. Like where, I mean, I can see how you started to track through my story and, and pull out the components. And we said, you know, that there are these love, security, freedom, and power, these components where people, you know, relate what money can create for them or their, what their finances can create for them. We've Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about healing our beliefs and our identity to money. So like, what's, if somebody's struggling with their relationship or just like, I mean, like for me, it's like, I feel like I just hit this plateau in life and it's like, now what, you know, mm-hmm. what are some things we can leave the listeners with as access points of like, where should they look or what could they actually start to kind of investigate yeah. for themselves? I'm glad you asked me, you know, I think the easiest place is actually to look at past successes hmm. and you know, the expression success leaves clues, but we always think that we're supposed to be looking at other people and the clues that they have left. I think we should look at our own because how you do one thing is not how you do everything. And like my parents, you can have it all going on and you can be a hot mess when it comes to your money. Now I'm not saying your listeners are a hot mess, but maybe it's not where they want it to be. So if you trace the roots of three successes, financial or non-financial, it doesn't matter any area of your life, And what you want is you want to pick the successes that were, you know, maybe you white knuckled it and you bit your nails and they were gritty and they were hard, right? You don't want the overnight success. You want stuff that was a bit of a journey where you had to be resilient. You had to rely on hope, self-efficacy, 
resilience and optimism, right? Hero for short. And you pulled in psychological capital, right? So not just maybe the financial resources that you had, but you also used what you knew, who you knew, and who you were being, right? So for example, when I have to step into challenging conversations, I pull in a little Aaron Brockovich, who is friendly and fierce and an advocate, right? So when I've got to kind of muster up that kind of thing, I, I actually thought one day about, you know, some of her traits that I really like, and I'm like, I'm going to embody those, you know, pull them in in the moments that I need that, right? When I'm not particularly feeling those things. Anyway, if we trace the roots and we go through, you know, what, what were the values that drove us to want to do the thing we ultimately became successful in? Where did things get off track and what did we do about it, right? So how do we stick to our plan? What were our resilience strategies? Like someone I know who did this with me, she discovered how much she used positive self-talk, which I always say, there's nothing new about positive self-talk. What was new is she realized how much she relied on that for strategy. So that's the gold for her. So it's really looking at how did you use all of these tools in your toolbox that you naturally used? And then when you're looking at a couple of successes, look for the common threads. Huh, I seem to always meditate a lot or use hypnosis or whatever it is. I'm a big hypnosis fan. Whatever it is that you've used in the past that you can see those common elements to, those can be mapped onto your money because those are the things you do naturally. And we just never think to look at what we already do really, really well in other areas and start doing it when it comes to our money. That's awesome. I can already see that for sure. That's really great. And so then for people who want to either learn more from you or potentially like hear more about you or work with you, what, what are the things that you offer or what is available for people to connect with you? Yeah. Well, the best place to find me is my website, michelleab.com. So it's michelle with two L's, ab.com and LinkedIn. And actually on my website is a success formula guide that somebody can walk them through exactly what we just talked about. That's great. Well, we'll definitely make sure that's all in the show notes so people can connect to you and like, and thank you listeners. I do feel like this is a very personal interview podcast. And I hope that my sharing of my story and, and some of my own examples helped you map it onto your own life and, and get some good kernels out of it. Michelle, this was really awesome and really unique. And I just get a sense of how grounded and authentic and pure your work is and where you come from. I'm, I'm a big fan of not having a lot of, like, I never wanted the Dr. Sarah Marshall method or gimmicks around it. And there's not a damn gimmick in your space. It's very true and authentic. And I really, really appreciate you being here and sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I've loved being here and I always love talking to you. Absolutely. All right. Until we get to do it again. Thank you to today's guest, Michelle arpin Bagina, for her generosity and boldness. For all the resources from today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our kick-ass host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. As always, thank you for being here. 
We'll see you next time.